IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week. We review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we're going to be talking about the resurgence of live albums in 2020 and also the future of live music and whether we're just going to be watching it on our computer screens from now on. My name is Stephen Hyden and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Steve, I don't know if it's people needing a break after the election or whether uh, you know they're just looking forward to Thanksgiving or conserving their energy before the year endless, but this week just seemed like a legendarily dry time for hot takes like what what were we what were we fighting about <laughs> online this week like relitigating well, the, we were relitigating harry styles wearing a dress on the cover of vogue right. with like ben Sh- oh man with ben shapiro like terrible story <laughs> i i hated that story instantly you know i look <laughs> do we have to defend pop stars from every lame attack from ben shapiro like, man like it's uh, like ben, it's, yeah it's like do we have to write think pieces now about how you know yeah harry Styles should be able to wear a dress in vogue and who cares man like that story <laughs> it irritated me from the jump yeah man didn't we like do this like five times in his press cycle and the i think the other thing like I, I can't. I think the other thing was like talking about like whether slow dive was male manipulator music. Like, oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah that these, was a good one. These, these these were the things that we hashed out this week. And man, we Thanksgiving just cannot come fast enough. It's like there's there's always this like one week in the college football season where like the season's heating up, and then all of a sudden like everyone plays their like non conference games. Like Alabama's playing Western Carolina just to give themselves a break and. I think that um, you know that happened to us this week, but I'll tell you what, IndieCast never, IndieCast is never not on the grind. So we are here to save this week. Well, I was gonna say, like, I think, like, would you say that IndieCast is male manipulator music? <laughs> I think uh, maybe this podcast is a red flag. I'd like to get that trend going. If someone, if some rando Twitter account could get that rolling for us. Yeah, con- the get- we, that that con- the, we we need some controversy to get us to that next level. Yeah, negative. We could use some negative pub for this podcast. I think that would help. It's always yeah. good to have a little negative pub. It shows that you're you're stirring the pot. Helps us with the next contract negotiation. You know, <laughs> exactly. So, um, speaking of which, yeah, we're gonna just talk about Harry Styles' dress in this episode. This is gonna be Sick. Uh, sixty minutes of debate about Harry Styles' dress. Uh, Spoiler alert, we both agree that he can wear a dress. Yeah, and we brought the uh, we're... we brought the entire staff of Rolling Stone here to debate it. It's going to be an eight-part series. <laughs> we all agree, <laughs> but we're still going to debate it right. uh, regardless. Uh, no, we're not going to be doing that. Um, we're going to be talking about live albums, which is a topic I am very interested in. And this has been an interesting year for live albums in sort of a surprising way, but really maybe not a surprising way. But before we get to that, we have our mailbag segment. And this is one of my favorite parts of our episode. I love mixing it up with our readers. or I always say readers. I, I'm just a writer first, not a podcaster, I think. Okay. They're probably readers, though, of us too, right? I mean, they're probably readers as well as listeners. Yeah. I, I do wonder how much like the podcast is like... Um expanded the readership as opposed to just like deepened it but either way man if like you're 
if if you're listening, like, thanks, man. Like that, it it, well, it means it's super meaningful either way. I'd I'd like to think that there's like people out there that have never read anything either one of us have written, but they love the show. <laughs> like they're like I. It's like I don't like to read music criticism, but I like hearing people talk about music criticism or perform music criticism orally. Uh, so I'm just listening to your show. Wait a minute. Write us an email. Are we saying IndieCast live, like in like doing the live stream is the future of the podcast? Like maybe that. Well, maybe that's the upshot of this entire episode. I mean, each podcast is a live album yes, in a way because because we are we are recording live. There are no overdubs. <laughs> yeah. there, there's minimal editing. Yeah. But you know, other than that, this is this is pure unfiltered uh, jams in the uh, in every episode. True, but you know, you can't. You just you just need the visual aspect. I think with this. Oh man, I don't. It's I don't like know. it's I like about you wouldn't li- you wouldn't do Pink Floyd live at Pompeii without like the you know the the visual, and I think we. Every episode do Pink Floyd live in Pompeii, except talking about like I don't know, war on drugs. <laughs> but you know that was Pink Floyd when they were young and they could perform without shirts on. Like we're at uh, our like <laughs> you know we're we're in the momentary lapse of reason part of our careers. I think right now where you don't really need to see Pink Floyd and at, at that time. <laughs> um, anyway, okay, so let's get to our question. This is from Patrick. Um, Thank you, Patrick, for writing in. This is his question. He says, I'd like to get your thoughts on kid on King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, specifically their crossover appeal between disparate guitar genre fan bases. King Gizzard, talismans of the psych rock scene with indie rock cred, cred, I kind of said that with a southern <laughs> accent, uh, appear to be gaining traction with the notoriously insular fish fan base. I love the fish reference because it indicates that this person was t- maybe thinking of me specifically. Yes. <laughs> if they had dropped if they had dropped like um a dog leg reference there, it would have been one of your people. Mm-hmm. Um I think their profile is going to increase greatly in 2021 with the eventual return of live music. They could become one of the touring dynamos of the next few decades and start playing smaller sports venues, possibly garnering a fan base closer to fish. I guess meaning like a cult band that is able to play arenas which is what fish can do what do you think king gizzard's trajectory is i absolutely love the podcast and i hope you guys discuss this fascinating band at some point now um thank you patrick for that question this is a pertinent question because king gizzard has a new record out today oh wow i believe that, that, um, that, what a, wow like what's it this like their 12th of 2020 like you know, they might have another one out by the time this airs so like let's <laughs> no this is like their first studio record in over a year like they dropped two live records earlier this year live in paris and live in adelaide the the new record that's out today is called kg um i haven't heard that record yet i will be checking that out i'm i may be listening to that album friday morning when this podcast goes up mm. Um, I'm definitely going to be checking that out, but, um, yeah, you know, as far as King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, again, for those who don't know, this is a band from Australia. Uh, they are famously, uh, prolific, I, I, I guess indie famously prolific. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they, they're known for putting out a lot of albums and also albums in different styles. They put out sort of like manic punk rock records. They put out more sort of psychedelic type records. They put out like kind of sunshine pop, uh, sounding albums. Um, and I've, I've dabbled in them. There's a, there's a few albums of theirs that I own. I I did pick up those live records that came out earlier this year. 
And I have to say, like, I love the idea of this band. I love, you know, I love prolific bands. I love a lot of the uh, genres that they've uh, that they've worked in. Um, and, you know, similar to our listener, I, I love the idea of, of there being like a an indie rock band that is adventurous live, that's doing a lot of different kinds of live sets that can build more of a jam band type following, even though I don't think King Gizzard really can be described as a, as a jam band. Although I think there's some elements of improvisation in in their shows, but I have to say that like I haven't fully connected with this band yet. Um, just in terms of their songs, I don't feel like the songs for me have been all that memorable. It's mm. more about sort of the visceral impact of their music, especially their more sort of up tempo stuff, which is really highlighted on those live records. It's there's a ton of energy on those albums that I appreciate, but again, the songs don't always quite stick for me. In a way, they remind me of that band, The OCs, Ah. who I think are, they have some similar sort of sonic attributes. I think they have a similar kind of following where The OCs don't get a ton of mainstream music coverage, but I I feel like they have a huge following, especially among maybe dudes our age. I, (laughs) I have a bunch of friends who like love The OCs. And I have to say, I like the OCs a little bit more because I've actually seen them live and they're a fantastic live band. And I have a feeling that if I get to see King Gizzard, and I was going to see them this year, they were coming to uh, the Twin Cities and I was planning on checking out their show. So I'm sad to have missed that. I think if I see them live, it'll maybe click for me. But so far, it's like I'm kind of halfway there to being a fan, but I'm not fully invested yet. Like, how do you feel about them? I feel like this band's not in your wheelhouse, really. <laughs> well, here, here's the thing. I, I, I do find them to be a very fascinating entity. And look, as much as I love our listeners and I, I love what we do and I respect the hell out of like what we put out so far, if we were to just completely pivot into covering King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizards releases every week on this podcast, like if we were just go full King Gizzard, I think our... I think our listenership would probably like triple or quadruple or something like that because this band, um, as you mentioned, I think psychedelic rock, um, you know, of this sort, like the that the bands that exist like in the jam band psychedelic rock sort of continuum are probably the most underserved fan base as far as like music writing goes. Um, they uh, like when in 2019, I think Cream the magazine made a documentary. Um, and I, I thought to myself, like, what if there was a kind of a similar leading publication that just f- considered King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard and like the, o- the OCs and Ty Siegel, the like th- the pinnacle of modern music? I think that that there is such a large audience for it. I know it because like I live in, you know, the part of the country that does desert days um, it seems like my in real life friends who are like in the music all seem to gravitate towards, um, you know, jam band type stuff. And look, I mean, I would imagine if I saw them live, I would be super into it as well. Um, I remember seeing, you remember the band called Goat? They were, I think, oh, yeah. I think they were Australian as well. Um, they were on Sub Pop, I think, and they wore masks. Um, I think similar sort of vibe to, if not like in sound, but just a, a similar idea. And I saw him for like 35, 40 minutes at Coachella one year. And I thought, this is fun. Like, would I see three hours of it? No. Um, I mean, in general, you are correct in that like the new psychedelic rock or garage rock scene like is 
means absolutely nothing to me on a songwriting level. Like I am fascinated by people who can become emotionally invested in like VOCs or Ty Siegel. Like I get why they like them, but like, I don't know if anyone has like an emotional connection to this music at all. Like whether it moves them in any sort of way or whether it's just cool to see like three drummers on stage, which inevitably it is. I listened to, well, I listened to one album of theirs, uh, King Gizzard. It was Polygon Dwana Land in 2017. And you know what? I kind of dug it. I didn't want to, I had no desire to listen to it again, but um, I, I respect this realm of music just because like they have absolutely no uh need to follow a narrative of any sort like they are just they there's something weirdly honest about people who are like straight up king gizzard fans or maybe there is like uh you know a whole bunch of people like calling out industry plants in the uh, psych rock jam band world well i mean i I think, you know, to go back to what you were saying about, like, do people feel emotionally connected to this music? I think they absolutely do. And I think, uh, you know, the people who are into it are really into it. I think partly because it is not covered by music publications. In yeah. a way, I feel like that is a plus for a lot of these bands because it feels more countercultural it, you know, yeah. to, to, to dig into this kind of stuff. And, I mean, look, we're two music critics, so we're always going to be looking at this kind of stuff through the prism of music criticism and whether things are being covered or not. And we have this bias toward like, well, things should be covered. They should be written about. Mm. But I do think that on some level, there's a real benefit to not being overexposed and, and not being think piece to death. And uh, I think that uh, for a lot of these bands, one thing I really respect about them is that there isn't this sort of expectation that they're even going to be covered. Uh, you know, because you definitely see, I think in the indie world, sometimes there's bands who get a little bit huffy because they don't feel like they get enough attention from music critics. Yeah. And I think they feel as though that if they get, you know, a review in Pitchfork, that that's going to make their career, that they're going to be more famous. And one thing I love about bands like this is that, like, if they get reviewed or not, it doesn't really matter. And it doesn't even matter to their fans because they're going to love them anyway. Yeah. And in a way, it's like if big music publications are covering these bands it's almost like well you're crashing the party like in a way you might ruin the party mm -hmm. by, by by showing up so it's like we're going to build our own scene and and be self-sustaining and uh you know not have to depend on sort of the whims of a very fickle <laughs> mainstream music media so i you know i i really love that about these bands and i think again like from our standpoint I think journalistically, you have. I think you can justify covering these bands. I think they deserve to be covered. Uh -huh. But from their perspective, I could see them easily saying, "No, continue to ignore us. Like we're doing fine as we are, um, and you know, please don't ruin the good thing that we have here." Yeah. So, it's a good segue to talking about our main topic in this episode, which is live albums. You know, I mentioned King Gizzard has put out two live records already this year, and it's been interesting because I feel like. You know, there's always live records that are coming out. Obviously, there's bands that actually allow taping at their shows. So there's always going to be some groups that have like a ton of live material, no matter what's going on in the world. But it does seem like there are more live albums to me, like by prominent groups that have been that have been coming out this year. And especially now at the end of the year, we're getting a bunch. Um, today is the release of the new War on Drugs album, Live Drugs. In, in a few weeks, we're going to have live records from... Deaf Heaven, Arctic Monkeys, the Postal Service is putting on a live record. I don't really understand the point of that, personally. I don't know. I'd be, mm. I'm curious to hear what that would even be like. That's not a band that I ever thought like 
Did they even ever play live shows? Oh, absolutely. Ab- Dude, yeah, absolutely. I saw them at Coachella. Okay. There's that Sun Kill Moon song, Ben's My Friend, about a Postal Service show. Uh, okay. Yeah. I just don't see the point of seeing them live. Uh, I, are they like... If you Look, they- if, if, you're, if you're someone who loves the Postal Service album, give up. And I think that it's... It's. I don't know if it's the best-selling album on sub pop history. I think that would still be Bleach by Never uh, by Nirvana, but it's probably number two. Um, yeah, when, pe- when people love that album and they just want to go to see it live. I mean, does it? Can't you just go to your friend's apartment and get drunk and put on the the album? I mean, yeah. I feel like that would be the same experience. <laughs> well, it's I, like I'm not saying I'm not saying it's not a good album. I'm just saying that they don't strike me as like a. Yeah, but I... A band you have to see live. Yeah, no, and I don't think so either. But, I mean, it's cool to see, like, you know, the... the When you... Depending on who the co-vocalist is, I think I, when I saw him at Coachella, like, Jenny Lewis showed up to do her parts, and that was fun to see. And, you know, maybe you get cool, like, audio-visual things going on just because, like, they don't have to really focus on, uh, you know, playing guitar, drums, like, live. I mean, you could tech... Like, it would be interesting to see them take that music in a more organic way just for kicks. But I think that um, with this particular uh, release, you know, you're going to get, like, the one Postal Service album and, like, a couple of covers and maybe a B-side. And, you know, just it it's it's content. It exists. And, you know, yeah. good, good for them. <laughs> well, good for them. You know, they're coming back. They had they took some guff because they had that comeback announcement and then they just told people to vote. Yeah, people were like, "Well, I thought you were going to drop a new album or something." Well, they did, and they did both. And you know what? Like, if when we look back on the 2020 election, I'm just going to think back to the time that Ben Gibbard told me to vote. That was the real turning point for our nation. Postal service bump. But (laughs) what if secretly more Trump people voted because they're like uh, because because they weren't specific. Part you know could have oh, been yeah. could be a lot of Trump fans that love Postal Service. You never know. Um, you know it's been a while since the early aughts. <laughs> People that were liberal then they could have you know grown up and become QAnon supporters. <laughs> you know in the last fifteen years, you never know. Um, going back to the War on Drugs album, which again comes out today, um, it will shock no one when I say that I love this album. I wrote about this record earlier this week. I actually wrote a piece on my favorite War on Drugs live bootlegs. Mm. So if you go on Uproxx, you can check that out. There's a lot of great albums that you can find on Live Archive. Or if you get the Relisten app, that's a great place to check out bootlegs. There's a ton of good War on Drugs albums on there. But um, the live album, Live Drugs, this is an interesting record because they do something on here that I normally don't like, which is editing a bunch of concerts together, sometimes within the space of a single song. Like there's songs on here that like, might have it might be like six different versions of under the pressure yeah. edited into like one super frankenstein under the pressure and normally i don't really like that i kind of like the feel of a complete show the documentary aspect the like you know feeling as if i'm actually in a venue and hearing a band that that tends to be what i like more but on live drugs they integrate all these different versions pretty seamlessly so like i didn't know that until i read the stereo gum interview huh. uh that Adam gave uh, last week. So um, I haven't heard the other live records yet. Like the Arctic Monkeys record, I haven't heard of the Deaf Heaven record. But I love Live Drugs. I, have you heard Live Drugs yet? Yeah, I've heard a few songs. And um, I mean, it, it, I think it's very appropriate when you think about like War on Drugs as a studio band, how uh, Adam will take 
like years to tweak phaser pedals and like EQing and you know particularly nowadays it takes like three or four years between albums for him to just go into the booth and listen to like dozens upon dozens of war on drug songs to find like the to isolate a few seconds of like yeah this is the best part of red eyes i'm gonna do this woo um so that makes sense to me um as far as this record um i look i i like the i love i like the war on drugs a lot uh all of their albums as far as like a, i think of them uh, as being like maybe in a position where it's sort of like when Wilco released Kicking Television or My Morning Jacket released Okanokos. I think that's how it's pronounced in 05, 06 or whatever. Um, and then I look, remember, I look at the, uh, I look at the uh, track listing. They're like the War on Drugs have only four albums. Um, they are not like a deep cut kind of band yet. And so it's cool they have greatest hits. On the other hand, you could argue that their last two albums are greatest hits. Like, I think there's one song from Wagon Wheel Blues on here and a cover and otherwise, like, their best known stuff. So I think it does kind of function as a greatest hits album for a band that doesn't really need a greatest hits yet. Um, that being said, when I listen, the, the I I think the production on War on Drugs albums is, like, just as important as, like, the songwriting, like, the immersiveness of it that... But the one thing I do always kind of wish is that like the the guitar solo from Strangest Thing would go on for like five more minutes, or like Red Eye would uh, Red Eyes would kind of go on for longer. Like I, so that part's good for me as far as like would I ever listen to live Drugs compared to say uh, Lost in the Dream or a Deeper Understanding? Probably not. Um, and if I'm looking. Did, is there any are there any songs from uh, Slave Ambient on this one? I, I don't think so. Wait. No, it's like it's def- it's definitely you know. I mean, I, and I think Adam even talked about this. This is like a representation of the band, uh-huh. essentially from like 2014 on. You know, yeah. when they became the lineup that they are right now. And you mentioned Kicking Television, the Wilco Live record. I think that's a good comparison because I feel like that record was very much about establishing like that line of, of, mm-hmm. of Wilco after you know, several years of instability, like where Jay Bennett left and then, you know, Leroy Bach was in there for a while and then he left and the kicking television lineup. That's where you have like Nels Klein, you know, Glenn Kochi of course is in the fold. Uh, I think Patrick Sansone was in the band by then, you know, basically the lineup that, that they've had for the last 15 years was really, I think it was like they present, they were presented to the world on kicking television. And I think that, uh, this this uh, War on Drugs, Drugs live album has a similar function, like where, you know, starting with that Lost in the Dream tour, that's where they had, like, the full band lineup. That's, like, where John Natchez is coming in, Anthony LaMarca, uh, you know, joining, you know, Robbie Bennett and uh, Dave Hartley. Hartley, you know, the, 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 the steady lineup. And I think, you know, the argument I would make for Live Drugs, along with the greatest hits thing that you mentioned earlier, which I think it is a good sampler of their certainly their recent output um is that it makes a case for the war on drugs being a band yeah as opposed to just being like a solo project for adam which is how they're presented on their live records i think that the band aspect does come through clearer on the live record than it does sometimes on their albums and you know we mentioned king gizzard having some uh overlap with the jam band world i think the war on drugs is also like one of those bands that appeals to that audience just because 
again, they're not quite a jam band, but there is enough elements to what they do where when they play live, they there is some rearrangement of songs. Or, you know, they're rearranging their... Uh, the arrangements of like eyes of the wind is like fairly different on the live record than it is on the album uh for instance and like you said about like the strangest thing guitar solo like the guitar solos on this record are louder and they go longer which for me is like reason enough uh, to like this record but it is interesting that you know that some of the things you were saying about like like what i would listen to this versus a studio record it it does point to like the larger questions Mm -hmm. about live records in general like my feeling is that i probably like live records more than you like i i wrote a piece (laughs) earlier this year I, I I wrote about my favorite live albums. I wrote about like fifty live albums that I really oh, love. Jeez, um, which I, I just love this format. This is uh, and it's interesting because I feel like there's people that really love live records, but I think overall people are pretty indifferent toward them. I think they are more of a niche product, and I think it is probably dependent on like what kind of music you like. Like if you are a person who likes bands that stretch out live that improvise a bit more live or if you're a person who just likes classic rock maybe uh you're i think you tend to like live records you know like i've been listening to mad dogs and englishmen a lot lately the joe cocker live record like i think that's a great record from 1970 you know and again i go back to the documentary aspect of it like i like listening to that record and feeling like oh this is what it was maybe like at the Fillmore East in 1970, a place I'll never get to go to. Or if I listen to James Brown live at the Apollo, it's oh, like, yeah, oh, this is that what, one, yeah. y- you get the vibe of like the Apollo in 1962, like the time travel aspect of live records. I always really like, and you know, that's why like a record like live drugs, while I love live drugs, I tend to not like it when they edit a bunch of performances together. I like the idea of a single performance you know, a moment in time that's been captured and you're also not just getting the band, but you're also getting the atmosphere of the venue. And I always really love that aspect of live records, but like, what, like, what are your feelings about this? Like, do you ever get excited about a live record or do you just think they're sort of redundant? Yeah. I mean, I love live music, but like for the experience of it, um, when you talk about like the documentary aspect of like listening to a James Brown album, absolutely. Uh, Joe Cocker, I did not expect that to be, uh, brought up on IndieCast. Great but, live record. Hey, That's a great live record. Go yeah. check it out. Um, but as far as like what a live record is meant to achieve, I liked something like Daft Punk's Alive that came out in 2007 where uh, the music is fundamentally altered. They kind of like mashed up and segued a lot of their music. So I think that was a good one. Uh, Built a Spills live album was surprisingly oh, yeah. good just because um, I think I'd put it along the lines of like... Uh, you know, kicking television and Okanokos because you, like those two bands, like Built to Spill had really evolved um, quite a few times uh, up to that point. Uh, same with like Wilco. They had gone from, you know, they had songs, I think, from like uh, Being There up until uh, A Ghost is Born, just wildly different stuff. And, you know, My Morning Jacket as well. Like they put theirs out immediately after Z. Um, and it kind of shows a band's uh, trajectory, but also like how it all comes from the same source. And, you know, the war on drugs, like I don't like they've ev- certainly evolved from wagon wheel blues, but I think that a deeper understanding and, uh, you know, lost in the dream are kind of the same sort cut from the same cloth. 
those are fine. But like otherwise, like live albums to me usually signify some sort of like contractual obligation or, you know, a need to put out content. Um, to, I, I would say as far as like an in, like it takes all the things away from live music that I enjoy, which is like the social aspect. Um, if I were to watch like a live DVD, yeah, I think that would be more to my tastes. Um, particularly if it's like an iconic performance. Like I remember I, I bought the DVD of the Cures trilogy where they played um, pornography, disintegration and blood flowers. And, you know, that was a cool thing to own. But otherwise, like live albums to me are like somewhere below remix albums. On the, oh, man. On the on the on the on the uh, They're below on the remix albums? Below remix. Because like, like, I mean, remix. So you put a remix album higher than a yes, live record? I, I, as what? Far, as far as like what they do to interest me, because I mean, like with a remix album, you at least have the chance of like getting like a different song. Like for the most part, like live also Radiohead's I Might Be Wrong EP because like the live version of of, like spinning plates really does it for me but um, that was also at a time when I would buy pretty much anything Radiohead put out but um, I mean it it, like live albums to me like look in the past year I've reviewed like Car Seat Headrest and Japan Droids live albums like bands I really love but it's like why would I listen to this like more poorly recorded and incrementally longer version of the same song and like what what I, what I need is just the feeling of what it's like to be amongst other people who you know love this band especially like I don't know if you feel this way like where you live but San Diego is like kind of a surprisingly like not a good music town and when I'm in a venue and it's like wow this many people in the same city in which I live also really enjoy seeing Pup what that that's something that's very heartwarming. Um, it kind of gives me more faith in humanity. But as far as like what a live album does, I mean, it just I, I, it I, it doesn't add much value. And also, I'll, well, quali- I'll, I'll also qualify that most of the bands that I love to see and I would say are great live bands, uh, it it wouldn't come across on an actual live album. Right. Well, I was gonna say that like. Yeah, there are live records that aren't very good because the bands themselves don't really yeah. do anything particularly interesting live, you know, yeah. or at least musically interesting. It, it it is more about that social aspect that you're talking about. Like I love Japan Droids, Te- but like just listening to a live record terrible by them, live act. like low yeah, key not a good not live great. act. The I shows are like awesome. That, the shows are I, awesome, but right, the they're but, not a good live band. No, I mean it just. Purely like if you're just listening to like the music being played, no, it, it isn't great. But I actually like that car seat headrest record huh. more than you do, just because I feel like they took their records and just made them sound like arena rock records, like yeah, on, on the live album. I, I like how much bigger it sounds live, so I appreciate that difference. I think that there is a gap between the albums and and what they're doing live. In in the same way, I think with the War on Drugs, like where you know, as a studio entity, maybe Carsey Headrest is more of a like a one act show where you have other musicians that are helping to realize his vision. Whereas live, they do feel more like a band, and uh, I think that's the case with the War on Drugs as well. Also, you know, hey, as someone who loves uh, you know the Dead and Fish, I have a different feeling about this because the, these are bands, obviously, that are taking their songs and playing them different ways every time they yeah. play live. So that is also something uh, 
that is really interesting. I have to say too that just for me, like in my own personal listening, I tend to listen to like live bootlegs as much as I listen to records. Just like when I'm listening to music for fun, just because I find that listening to a record, if it's an album that I know really well, I get a little tired of it, and hearing like a live version of it actually uh, enlivens it a little bit. It, it, it's coming at a song that I love from a slightly different angle. So, you know, going back to the war on drugs example, I do see myself reaching for live drugs because like I've heard lost in the dream and deeper understanding like a million times. And Mm -hmm. I still love those albums, but I look forward to hearing uh, the live versions uh, of those songs. You know, it's interesting to me. I mean, I was thinking about, you know, all these live records that have come out this year and and there's other albums that we haven't mentioned yet there's like a father john misty album that came out <laughs> earlier this year there's a his golden messenger he's put out a couple live records obviously those king gizzard albums uh there's like a couple drive-by truckers live records that have come out i mean like a lot of artists have put out live albums on Bandcamp in conjunction with Bandcamp friday i mean there's been a ton of records like that that have come out and it's hard for me to not see a coincidence between that and the fact that there is no actual live music for the most part yeah. <laughs> this year. It seems like, uh, you know, if, if, this, if, if this were a normal year, I wonder if we would be seeing as many uh, live albums as, as, we, as we've been seeing. Um, and it also made me think about how really the only way that most of us have, have experienced any kind of live music in 2020 is via live streams. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like, I've had kind of a mixed experience watching concerts uh, via live streams. There's some I really love, and some that I thought were kind of flat and boring. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what are your feelings on that? Like, what have your experiences been like? So the first live stream, or like the first you know live show that I saw that was like tailored to towards the pandemic, came like pretty close to when it actually started. Like uh, Code Orange, a band that I don't know if we've talked about. On this podcast, um, I just love their energy and what they do. Uh, they, they're they like kind of AJ Soprano windbreaker music, but I mean that in like the best possible way. Their album uh, Underneath came out on March 13th, which was pretty much when the lockdown started. And they had plans to do uh, a really cool tour um, with, I, who was it? I think, I think it was with, like Wicca phase and like Nicole Dollenganger or whatever. And, and so they had this tour plan, but obviously they had to like shut it down. And what they did is they used all of their stage production, which is really incredible, like all of their lights and that to do a release show in an empty Pittsburgh theater where they're from. And um, just the production quality of it was so high. I think it put a, it, I think it set the bar too high going forward because that show is incredible it showed a band that was like really willing to like challenge what the live, um, what live music could be presented as in 2020. But after that, it's just been a lot of um, like uh, the way I'll compare it is this, like I know at work or just in general, when I'm on like a zoom call or something along those lines, like I'm paying attention, but like, I'm also kind of distracted. And I think that's what like live, streams have done for me even with bands i like because um as much as it's cool to see you know the the recordings be good like the sounds usually good um especially now that they have some practice on it but um it's 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 almost like i can distract myself from it um or i can pause it and go to the bathroom or i can 
like muted or just like fast forward to a song I like more, you know? So I understand like we are in a process of just trying to figure it all out. I don't, um, I don't hold it against any band who doesn't really come off yet on a live stream. I think we're still, I I think we're slowly moving away from the, we're just going to perform our songs live. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's going to be more like David Bazan style Q and A's or, uh, like cover like versions of songs, like what post Malone did with Nirvana. But you know, this year, like I haven't had a, the transformative experience with the live stream that leads me to believe that, um, we're going to find something to replace the, uh, you know, the, the go to the club sort of thing that I think people really want to get back to. Yeah. You mentioned that post Malone Nirvana show. I feel like that is the most iconic live stream concert of 2020. That's the one that I hear mentioned the most. And it's the one where people always say, wow, that was like better than I thought it was going to be. Like that was Mm -hmm. pretty, pretty good, which I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good too. I enjoyed that. Um, What you were saying earlier about how a problem with live streaming concerts is that you can skip around easier and it, in some ways it distracts you from the immediacy that is one of the great things about live music that you can sort of get lost in the moment of watching a band. It made me think about how difficult it is. Certainly for me, and I think a lot of people, like when you DVR like, a football game or a basketball yeah. game and then you watch it later like when you know that it isn't live it's so easy to just be like well i'll just go to the fourth quarter like yeah. i don't need to watch all this and it, it kind of ruins the experience when it's not live uh i think there is some of that uh with streaming i have to say that for me you know i've tended to gravitate to artists that were already live streaming shows like before this happened yeah and in some ways i think are better equipped at approaching it in a creative way like trey anastasio from fish he's been doing these uh weekly concerts at the beacon theater in new york that have actually been really great like not just visually but like musically like they are shows that you could actually listen to later on because he's like he's playing with a band he's also has like a a, a, like a string section that he's been playing with every week (laughs) so he's been like radically you know rearranging some of his songs in a really interesting way to the point where you feel like, oh yeah, like I'm curious to see what he's going to be doing musically. Um, I also really loved, uh, like Sturgill Simpson did a live stream from the Ryman back in the summer where he previewed like the bluegrass oh, yeah. arrangements that he was going to be doing. Uh, you know, he put out that I'm cutting grass volume one. Um, I guess that was last month <laughs> now, but he, he previewed it with that Ryman show. That was really fantastic. Um, I saw a Riley Walker live stream from uh, La Poisson Rouge. I think that was last week. That was really cool. Um, there was a Pup live stream that I really liked. Yeah, out of, I, out, I of, that was about- out of bands I like, I'm super into that have done live stream. I think that was the best. Uh, that was the best yeah, that of was, the bunch. Which is that was well done. Yeah, which is really hard to do for Pup because I mean, like the entire point of going to a Pup show is just to like really wild out with like everyone like in a real cramped space but they've been one of the best bands as far as like utilize like putting out uh material in the pandemic with their zine um you know the live stream just the fan engagement like they're uh i like it, it's really heartening to see how a band like them who would you know, would be kind of considered the typical like brick and mortar type uh rock act that they've been able to adjust to being online so 
Well, I think they're another band that, you know, and this is a theme in this episode, I guess, where, you know, we could we could uh, link this up with, with the King Gizzard discussion. I think Pup is a band that is creating its own world around mm-hmm. its music that fans feel invited to be a part of, where, you know, Pup gets good coverage from, from the music press, but I feel like they're approaching this point, like, where, you know, that's going to matter less and less, because if you are a band that can create its own world, Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't really matter as much like what the outside world is saying. It's like if you love pup, you're in the pup world, you're gonna mm-hmm. want to be with them. And I see like their live stream concert as being a part of that. And yeah. I think maybe that's why it works better with them than it would maybe for a lot of other bands of that of of that sort. I was gonna say too that like uh, the other you know live stream format that I've responded to is like when artists don't try to replicate the feel of a concert, mm. but actually lean into the intimacy of a Zoom and and give you a different look at what they do. Uh, like the Jeff Tweedy thing that he's been doing with his family. Like where, I don't know if you've seen any of these, but like, I think it's just called like the Tweedy Family Show or something. But yeah. like they're basically like in the attic of their house. And it's like Tweedy and his like wife is holding the camera and like his sons are there. And like they'll talk and goof off and then they'll play songs. I think that's like pretty cool because again, it's like that's not something that you would have ever gotten if not for the pandemic. You know, that's not a typical concert. It is something where if you're a fan, it's like, oh, I'm getting a peek into a world that I wouldn't normally get. So I like that too. It's like, don't even try to replicate the feel of a concert sometimes. Just kind of embrace the limitations and the attributes of of this new format that we're in. It is curious to see. I mean, I, I do wonder like, you know, as we see live music come back, you know, <laughs> I don't know. What, I don't know what the timetable is for uh, that. I mean, we're talking about you know, there's all this news about coronavirus vaccines hopefully being introduced by like you know early to mid next year. But then you feel like, well, Ticketmaster is asking us, "Hey, have you been vaccinated?" Like, yeah, exactly. Also, you here's an to... additional fifty dollars surcharge. Right. Yeah. Like. Well. Yeah. The, for those who haven't seen the story, there was a story that Ticketmaster is going to be asking for like verification that you've been vaccinated before you can attend one of their concerts. I don't know if that's like for certain or if that's <laughs> just been floated out as a um, as a proposal. Uh, but anyway, yeah. I I do wonder like if this is something that's going to be here to stay or if this is just a stopgap. You know these live stream concerts, these Zoom concerts. Because like I said, there were artists that were already live streaming concerts before this. They were streaming concerts that were in front of people. You know, it wasn't just like in a room somewhere. But um, I do think that there's a potential here uh, to, uh, you know, make this part of what live music is now moving forward. You know, not the only thing, but... I would be curious to see more bands embrace this and, and, and to approach it in a more creative way uh, as a way to just engage with an audience. And yeah, maybe you can't get to a show because the band's not in your town, but you can still see them and experience them and feel connected uh, to this band that you love. Yeah, because I mean, I think even in live music, like uh, 2019 live music, you know, bands wouldn't necessarily come to your town. Um you know, like even even San Diego, like, you know, bands would skip it over because they played L.A. or they're playing Orange County. And um, I don't think we're ever going to go back to the, uh, you know, bands put out an album, they do a tour, then they come back and they do another tour. I think that they're going to have to be more creative as far as engaging with listeners or, you know, in the alternative. I've spoken with a lot of bands who, 
I mean, yes, it takes away like one of the most reliable streams of revenue. But also, if you're in a band that's kind of, you know, not making a lot of money um, and you're kind of on the older side, it like they actually kind of it's kind of a relief to not have to like, you know, go leave your home for like three months just to like lose money. I mean, if you're 20 bands I've spoken to who are like 22 years old or whatever, like they don't care because they're not really doing a major job anyway. But I would wonder if like for a certain level of bands, um, it's maybe a relief to not have to, you know, get in the van the way they used to, especially nowadays where it's like, I know like it's, it's about to be winter and, you know, no band wants to go through the Midwest during that time, you know? Well, well, no, I, yeah, it's it's just <laughs> no. You're right. Yeah, it's like I'm no, not, no, th- it, it, I'm not. It's not a knock on the Midwest, well, but like you hear bands like not realizing like what it actually means to have to like drive through Buffalo, uh, you know, in November. Uh, right. And, well, and I don't and even want to leave the fl- house and sleep on floors or whatever. I don't even want to leave the house like in in winter time, uh, in you know, living here in the Midwest. So it's also good for music fans on some yeah. level, if if you just want to be lazy and, and and check out stuff at home. Although at this point, I would trudge through like two feet of snow to yeah. see a live show. I'm pretty desperate at this point. All right, we've now reached the part of the episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we are into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so I'm surprised that um, you haven't brought this one up first, but um, a band called uh, Thunder Dreamer. They yes. are <laughs> they are from uh, Evansville, Indiana, and um, that I oh my God, Mattingly. Okay, I, I, I would, which I knew because Don Mattingly was my favorite baseball player as a kid. Got it. Yeah, I've actually the, when I I love their uh, 2017 album Capture. Um, in a weird sort of uh, coincidental circumstance, I was in Evansville, Indiana when I first listened to it in 2017. Uh, Evansville, Indiana. For those who doesn't don't know, it's a border town with Kentucky, and I was at. Uh, the Kentucky Academy for Nutrition and Dietetics meeting, which took place in Owensboro. Uh, and it really struck me uh, how being in the Midwest affects listening to Midwest music because um, th- I just remember in Evansville so much open space. Um, you would get like people who like, you know, own homes and just enormous yards and also long stretches of nothing. It's really um, a quintessential Midwest sort of Midwest sort of not quite suburb, not quite city. Um, and that was really reflected in capture, um, being this expansive combination of a lot of Midwestern rock, be it like Magnolia electric company. There was, uh, some cloakroom in there, maybe some early red house painters, uh, love that album. And, um, they signed to tiny engines and we all know what happened with that. But um, a few weeks ago, they put out an album called Summer Sleeping, or it's actually more of an EP. And um, like so many other former Tiny Engine bands in 2020, they've just uh, really taken on, they, they've really established this label knew what they were doing, at least with the A&R part, uh, maybe not so much like the accounting. Um, but they've taken a, a turn into more of like a, almost like a twee pop sort of thing. Like someone uh, I knew compared it to Jens Lechman, um, maybe more like a Pernus Brothers sort of thing. And it's five songs that are 
still like they still have that kind of atmosphere and the ranginess of you know maybe like a band like real estate but more of like uh they're more like kind of love songs sappy in a little bit of a way but nonetheless like i'm really interested to see where they take things from here because um i could see them being a favorite of if we can consider indie cast almost a genre i think it hits like kind of like wilco's more sweeter songs but also um maybe more of like a a gritty midwestern sort of take on it so their new uh their new ep summer sleeping um highly recommend it um indiana a state that i find endlessly fascinating for some 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 reason uh mostly because it like sits at this uh intersection of like the south and the midwest and the rust belt um just very interesting and overlooked state yeah yeah i love that uh ep i i uh tweeted about it like a week or two ago and I made the, the, the Pernice brothers comparison and the band tweeted back saying that they'd never heard the Pernice brothers until well. <laughs> I tweeted that. And then they said that they checked out some songs and, and liked it. So yours, yeah, really yours like mine and yours, mine and ours is, is, is a real sleeper hit from 2003. That is like a quintessential suburban 4th of July album. Check that out. Oh, yeah. If you get a chance, that's my personal first... favorite. Yeah, their first three or four albums are really good. Overcome by Happiness, the mm. '98 album is really good, and the, the World Won't End, I think, is the next yeah. album. Uh, really pretty, uh, you know, melodic indie rock. Yeah, stuff like for real, real clever, art. real clever and academic. Like this is back when, like, you could say, yeah, I'm a real student of like, um, you know, Morrissey or like Orange Juice, and like not have it be a problem. Or like the Zombies, yeah. like that '60s type. Yeah, exactly. You know, can kind of like sunshine pop type sound. Largo um, core. <laughs> yeah. Also, I have to shout out the Scud Mountain Boys, which was Joe Pernice's previous band. <laughs> uh, their album Massachusetts. We're going deep on Pernice Brothers here in the yeah. recommendation corner. I like it. Uh, the album I'm going to recommend is called Just Look at the Sky by a Chicago band called Ganser. Mm. And I've been listening to this record because I'm in that process now where I'm starting to think about my year-end list. And I've been revisiting a lot of albums that I enjoy during the year. Or maybe I, I, I sort of earmarked to like investigate further and I maybe didn't get around to doing it. And uh, this has been an album I've been, I've been coming back to a lot. I, I have to say that like when it came out, I didn't really notice it i didn't listen to it a ton and quite frankly like no one else really did either pitchfork didn't review it i don't uh. think stereo gum really wrote about it um but uh, to me i it's been really uh hitting me at the right spot now i guess now mm. that we're approaching the cold weather months i mean we are in the cold weather months here in the upper midwest so this is a band that has uh this kind of chilly post-punk sound they are a band from chicago so i'm sure they have some of that frigid weather baked into their bones um but what really draws me to this band is the contrast between you know the guitars and rhythm sections which is very surly and angry and has like a real kind of gritty edge to it and the vocals uh by uh, there, there's two singers in this band nadia garofalo and alicia gaines really good singers and i have to say that i'm at a point now like when it comes to punk bands or post-punk bands that like i feel like i only like bands with female singers at mm. this point i i i feel like i'm i've been listening to like punk rock guys for most of my life and i'm just a little tired 
<laughs> of the punk rock guy vocal. And I don't know if we're going to have a conflict over this. Yeah. I'm not saying there's there are bands with dude singers like in the punk world that I still like that I enjoy, but um just like the whiny dude who can't really sing or is like screaming a lot. I'm just like tired of it. <laughs> Whereas I feel like there's like a lot of like great women and punk bands and post-punk bands that just have like much better voices, like full-throated like they're you know they can they have a greater range i mean they're they're technically better singers but they just have like more soul to me and i think that is the real uh thing with ganser that puts them over the top for me that uh you know they have all the the kind of post-punk attributes that you want from a band but but with just like killer vocals so uh this is an album that is definitely shooting up my list and we'll see if it makes my top 20 we're going to be doing i think multiple best albums of the year podcast uh on indiecast in december so looking forward to getting into that um but yeah this is a really good record yeah this album um look it i don't think it's much of a secret that like you know the the qualifiers of chicago and post-punk don't really move the needle much for me that being said i i remember hearing this one a, a while back and enjoying it as well like um it, i first off band that's great to interact with on twitter i'll give it that um they're 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 good folks and um yeah i mean i think the vocals were surprisingly strong on this as well um as far as like i think there's a time and place for all vocals um you know obviously i'm a big fan of the bad singing um and in a weird way like um I think most of the interesting uh, punk rock of late has been made by people who aren't dudes. So, uh, you know, whether or not that's due to the vocals, I'm not sure. But I just think it, it's it for me, it's like more of a perspective than a vocal thing, because in some weird way, what, no matter who's singing, if the vocals are too good, then that's kind of a weird thing for me to interact with in um you know, in punk rock. Like I, I, I think about like back in 2007 or eight when. Uh, after Riot came out, like a whole bunch of like punk rock bands, like we're trying to rip off Paramore with like, you know, really actually they can sing singers, and it just seemed a bit like off putting to me. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a vocal quality, yeah. but it's also like a vocal personality. Like, I yeah. feel like there's just so many dudes who sound like the standard punk guy voice, and it doesn't have any character to it. Whereas, generally speaking, like with a lot of the punk bands and post punk bands that I've been responding to in the last few years, yeah. I feel like. They they're generally like women singing, yeah. and they have more character. Like I feel like, oh, I can if I hear that, I know that's that's them, you know, it, rather than just like again, yeah. I, I a person who I feel like is sort of imitating a vocal style that they've heard from like a million yeah. bands. Well, it's, it's, it's like it's very. Let's it's, have a different vocal style. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm a, a little tired of that vocal style. <laughs> well, I think it's I think we can. There, I I know that there's like a lot of. Um, I think like British post punk bands that are kind of coming back with that style of vocal, and right. uh, I'm interested. That's to bad see, too. Yeah, I'm interested to see like where the world where the world uh, comes down on that because that seems yeah to like be the one like of the, the more renewa- one of the more renewable resources is like the enemy like kind of post punk. Ooh, they're bringing danger back to rock and roll. Right. Yeah, like the <laughs> monotone, like the monotone voice, like with the pronounced accent like that is such a cliche of that kind of music and i'm like tired of that kind of vocal style too like let's shake it up here a little bit you know like i love ian curtis but like don't be ian curtis be yourself like so yeah there's i don't know that that might be a topic for another indie cast where we just rank 
singers <laughs> and talk about vocal styles that we can't stand. But yeah. um, I should say that before we conclude this episode that we are going to be taking Thanksgiving off. We will not have an episode next week, but we'll be back uh, in, De- in December. And I think we're going to be really ramping up with our year-end stuff. Mm. So if you're looking for music recommendations, we're going to be hitting you hard with yeah. lots of albums that... You may know, but hopefully lots of records that you missed uh, throughout 2020 will be hipping you to those. So excited to get into that. But for now, we must bid you farewell. So thank you for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more reviews, news, and hashing out trends uh, in our next episode. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie. And I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. All right. Peace.